Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Good morning. Disgraced detective Roger Rogerson has died days after suffering a brain aneurysm in prison. The once decorated officer turned corrupt cop was serving a life sentence over the murder of a young drug dealer. His career in the force unravelled dramatically with links to organised crime. In episode 317 of Australian True Crime, we spoke to Ray Mooney author, playwright and former inmate of Pentridge Prison. One of the subjects we spoke about at length was Ray's friendship with the man known as Mr Rent-A-Kill, contract killer Christopher Dale Flannery, who disappeared without a trace in May 1985. Flannery was a close associate of infamous corrupt cop Roger Rogerson, who died himself this week at the age of 83. Rogerson was serving a life sentence for the murder of 20-year-old drug dealer Jamie Gow. His conviction for that murder was somewhat ironic, given that he proudly boasted of having killed three drug dealers during his police career and gotten away with it. But Rogerson was well and truly retired from the New South Wales Police Force by May 20, 2014, when he and another former detective, Glenn McNamara, ambushed Gow in a storage unit in Padstow in southwest Sydney. Rogerson was in his 70s and McNamara in his late 50s when they covered the floor and walls of the storage garage with tarpaulins and waited for Gow to be dropped off as planned by two other men. He was carrying just over three kilograms of methamphetamine and within minutes of walking inside the garage, he was shot dead, wrapped up in the tarp and then zipped up inside a silver surfboard bag. For a bloke with legendary street smarts like Rogerson, The most shocking aspect of this crime is, without a doubt, its sloppiness. Everything that comes next was captured on cameras, either the standard security cameras mounted inside the storage facility or those inside commercial premises or in and around the suburban unit complex that McNamara called home. At 2.18pm on the day of Gow's murder, Rogerson and McNamara were captured struggling to carry his body in the silver surfboard bag out of the garage before lifting it into the back of Rogerson's white Falcon station wagon, which he'd parked conveniently out front. At 3.03pm, 
The car was captured arriving at McNamara's apartment block in Cronulla. The two men went inside and at 3.51, they emerged and left the building in the same car. At 4.20, the men can be seen shopping and buying a two-tonne chain block, which according to police they later used to try and weigh down Jamie Gow's body. At 6.24, they returned to McNamara's apartment. Each time they visited his home, they were filmed driving into the underground car park and travelling up and down in the lift. At 7.38, after the men had travelled down in the lift with fishing rods, McNamara's car is filmed leaving the underground car park towing his boat. The silver surfboard bag is clearly visible on the floor of the boat. Six days later, Jamie Gow's body was found floating two kilometres off Cronulla Beach by fishermen. It was still wrapped in a blue tarp and zipped inside the silver surfboard bag. Rogerson was arrested at his home the following day. Now, in a full circle moment, the disappearance of Chris Flannery, Mr Rentakill, remains a mystery. His body has never been found and rumours about who, how and where he was killed have always run wild. But is this mystery going to be solved now that Roger's not around to guard the truth anymore? One of the rumours that gained traction over the years was that Flannery had been lured onto Sydney Harbour for a day on a boat with gangster George Freeman, and that once out there, he was murdered and dumped overboard, all at the behest of Roger Rogerson. In fact, the Australian newspaper reported that McNamara gave evidence during the Gow murder trial to the effect that Rogerson had admitted as much to him, but that evidence was suppressed by the court. Well, Flannery's friend, who continues to be his greatest supporter, is back with us today to share more memories of Roger the Dodger. He doesn't think Chris Flannery died that way, but he does think Roger was behind it, and he'll explain how their once close relationship soured, and lots more very soon. First up, though, we begin with asking Ray Mooney what he thought when he first heard that Roger Rogerson was on his deathbed just days ago. I think there was an article that came through the Herald Sun. That was, and then they took it down for three days, which was very interesting. So that was the first. I just fluked it and just saw it, and then I, you know, and then everyone started commenting everywhere else, and the, everyone who's ever done anything on him has sort of been asked. I think. Yeah, I bet. You know, That's what I thought. That was my comment on social media. Was I said, oh, I bet some people are, uh, are refreshing their manuscripts and everything else this weekend. It is interesting, as you say, that that story appeared and then disappeared. And even when Roger died, I assumed it would be splashed across every news site and everywhere, but they kept it pretty quiet in a way. The whole media scenario around him is very, very interesting. If you go back to when he originally sued Kerry Packer and Kerry Packer brought in um, Turnbull, the guy who went on to be um, the Prime Minister, this was over the killing of Lanfranchi, where it was uh, where they reported Sally Ann Huckstick's accusations against Rogerson that it was an absolute ambush, of course, and that he was murdered on sixty minutes. Well, what actually happened at the time? The police association with Roger sued, and Packer had a meeting with um, Rogerson, and they agreed on an amount that was never disclosed. However. 
the rumours were that he was going to get a lot of favourable publicity. And that actually happened. If you go back and look at, you know, the publicity and, and the way the media have had played an incredible role in the rise and the rise of Rogerson until the jury shooting, where they started to sort of see that there was a bit more of a um, media commodity by arguing both sides, and support was pulled out from him then, and and he sort of went down, down, down. But um, it was very interesting in in the early days in terms of the media's support and then their non-support of him. Yeah, I had no idea about that, any of that. Well, he was destined to be commissioner. I think everyone would acknowledge that yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he, he was the sort of the, the bright star on the, on the horizon. And despite the fact that he was exonerated over Lamfranchi, there was such a bad smell about it. It was quite incredible. And, and where the media failed to follow through on Lamfranchi was that there were 17 police in that laneway at the time who supported his arguments. And his arguments were that he went bang, bang straight away. And there were witnesses in the, in nearby houses that said that there were at least 11 seconds between both shots. Now, 17 police supported him, which meant that, gee, there's an incredible smell here within the police force. And that never sort of came to the forefront until decades later. A couple of days ago, somebody came forward with an inscription that Roger had written inside a book about him and this person had gone to one of those speaking nights that Roger was part of back in the, when was that, early 2000s when he and Chopper Reed and Mark Jackson were touring. The psychos, the Australian psychos. That's right, yeah. (laughs) And um, and Roger was, you know, he wasn't uh, he wasn't scared of of a nice inscription in a book. He wrote some pretty hairy things in people's books. And Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
This book he wrote three bullets and three men dead. Yeah, yeah. He's backtracked on one of those. I was going to say, I assumed one of them was Warren Lanfranchi, who we've discussed. Who were the other two, do you think? Well, the other two are documented quite well. The, the first, the guy was one guy was named Philip Weston. He backtracked on that and said it was a sniper who shot him. When in fact, um, at the time, he took credit for it. And the other guy was that uh, Lawrence Byrne that was shot uh, during the, the the attempted holdup, and um, and he definitely took credit for that. So he quite like it's. I think if you look at the man in terms of the psychology of the man, there was varying stages throughout his life where he was really addicted to being what we call the best at what you do. And he started out by being the best typist in the entire police force because he did shorthand and and he was a very quick typist. Then he started out with a reputation of being the best verbaler and everyone wanted those reputations at the time. And then, of course, no other person in the in the New South Wales Police Force has shot and killed three people. So he was quite willing to put his hand up to the three, although later on down the track he did say he didn't kill um, Weston. These were three people who were, he was on duty and these three men were on the run at the time and he was supposed to be arresting them. Is that correct? That yes. Philip Weston was at Avoca Beach in New South Wales. That's right. And Lawrence Bushyburn at Kingsford in 76 and 78 respectively. And so on all three occasions, these were shots fired in the line of duty was his defence. And so that was the big, the big brag was that he had gotten away with shooting three men, supposedly. His big brag legally was that he had shot three people. That was his big brag legally. Uh, The other two, by the way, were shots in company with with other detectives. Yeah. And and the last one there was two. I think it was Harding who might have been, and Harding since dead. So, but as you say, he he was a bragger. I mean, whether it was he was the best typist in in the service, or he was the, yeah. the only bloke who'd gotten away with shooting three blokes on duty legally. He loved to be the to be able to brag that he was special. Well, and that's what he did, by the way. And he was accompanied by the media who really did support him. You know, we're talking about a time where, you know, the, the most um, watched crime films of the day were the Dirty Harry series, the yeah. revenge concepts. And, and and the world was really saying, look, if you have to if, – if police – believe someone is really in the wrong, we should give them the right sometimes to go outside the, the legal boundaries. And, and that's what was happening. It really was. And and he grabbed that mantle and ran with it. And so he had an incredible reputation within the police force. He was honoured, really honoured. You know, people, even today, there are some people who still can't believe that he killed Jamie Gow. I know what you mean. And you're right. I mean, he, he won three bravery awards. Well, he won the Peter Mitchell one, which was a big one. Yeah. A really big one. The biggest loss that I have seen in the last 20 years has been the loss of investigative journalism from papers like The Age. And that, that to me, is the biggest loss that, 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 that has actually happened. And that's allowed a lot of people to escape 
incredible scrutiny. We no longer have that real uh, – what we do now is – and I say this nicely <laughs> – we do podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, you're right, you know, yeah. We do all these kinds of stuff, but we don't ever really research. Like, you know, I, and I nicely say this. No, I take your point because we, um, you know, we talk to journalists. I had no idea about the tobacco wars that are going on in Melbourne until last November when we had a journalist on who is an investigative journalist from The Age. But I know I take your point in that their newsrooms have shrunk so much. But this yeah. woman has been investigating those tobacco wars for, you know, 12 months previously and writing about it. And now here we are with an arson attack a week on tobacco shops in Melbourne. And my local shop down my main street here was done two nights in a row a week ago, you know, and I think, wow, we should all know about this. I only know about this because I tracked down a journalist and she educated me, she explained it all. But you're right, they are the keepers of the of the important stories, of the truth, of the education. They're the people who tell us what's really going on. But you're right, the context is really fascinating in terms of the popular culture of the time because there was this sense of the Dirty Harry kind of cop who just did whatever needed to be done and the rest of us should turn a blind eye and should let them get on with the work, get on with the job. Yeah, and, and in the film industry, that was followed by all the Bronson um, revenge films, you know, and we still have the Denzel Washington sort of like films today. They are very popular films and and we don't enshrine it in um, legality, but most people would argue that, look, if they're, if they're going to clean the streets and keep us safe, then we should give them the right and support them to do it, even though we can't legally enshrine it. Yeah. I have had people mention to me Roger's arrest record and say to me, well, listen, he was obviously a very good copper too because whilst he was up to all sorts of shenanigans, whilst he was taking kickbacks, he was working in drug trades, he was doing all that stuff, he was still making a lot of arrests. So this suggestion is almost that he must have been twice as good a cop if he was able to be a criminal at the same time. What do you make of that? Uh, oh, there's no doubt about that. Like, you know, he, he was very successful as both. There's, and, and, and there's been a lot of people in that category. But you've got to factor in the fact that he had a reputation of being the best verbaler in the game. And he was taken up to the Whiskey Go-Go in, in Queensland to Verbal Finch he was the person in the Croatian six who verbaled them. And in the Ananda Marga, he verbaled uh, Anderson. And and that has since come out that that's the fact that, you know, that, that he was the best verbaler. They took him interstate when they wanted to really make certain there were going to be no holes in, in alleged confessions. He was excellent at doing that. Excellent. What was the purpose in that, though? I mean, when we talk about the Ananda Marga story. That was to do with the Hilton bombing, right? Yes. Now, inside the Hilton were some of Australia's biggest politicians. Like, that that could have been an incredible political assassination. That was, it's, it's fascinating that we don't talk about that or think about that case a lot anymore. It happened in 1978. So what, what was the motivation for someone like Roger to pursue a false confession? Well, with the Ananda Marga one, it was to cover up for the stupidity of whoever did it, and the and the strong evidence was that ASIO had a big hand in it. They blundered it. They stuffed it up totally. So he was brought in to sort of clean up, and and that's what he was good at, and that's why he was, you know, he was really celebrated in such a big, big way. 
that's why you use Rogerson. You know, you knew that there were you were going to get a, like Anderson finished up going to jail. Yeah. Did he use violence specifically or, or singularly, or did he was he good at psychology to get false confessions? No. Look, it's really interesting with Rogerson. In a one-out fight, he'd probably not come out too well. But if you're handcuffed to a table or to a chair, then you're going to come out, you know, second best no matter what. So he had a rep. Oh, and by the way, you've got to remember the squads he worked with. He worked with the armed robbery squad. He worked with um, Section 21. He worked with the most violent of the most violent police. And you did not get their respect if in any way you pulled back or you showed timidity. So he was as vicious as anyone, but he wasn't a fighter. What do you think was going through his mind when he was in his, how old was he when he he committed the crime that he finally went to jail for, the murder of Jamie Gow? Uh, When he was retired, he was on the speaking circuit. He was seen as a lovable rogue, literally standing next to Chopper Reed. He was in that kind of, he was able to go on stage every night and boast and be celebrated and be paid for it. What do you think got into his mind, he and his co-offender McNamara, another former policeman, when they decided to get in back into the drug trade? Well, I think the story's never been told properly. No. Uh, and I've read a lot about from so-called, mainly from police versions of it, but this is just my theory. But if you look at that very, very closely, when Gower is driven to meet McNamara with the drugs. There's two other people in the car with him who two days after Gao's disappearance fly back to uh, overseas. It was strongly rumoured that Gao had been working with federal police in terms of potentially setting up triad people. If this is the case, you've got to backtrack all the way through. And there's so much more to that than what we know. Like arguably this kid turns up with McNamara and there's two people. So they know, these two that have gone with him know the whole deal. In other words, they know what's actually happening. Supposedly when Rogerson gets there, he goes in and nearly immediately the kid is killed. So whichever one of them did it, it's happened straight away. Now, if they're talking about that, oh, they would, there to buy ice, and supposedly it was $700,000 worth of ice, a bit under three um, grams. To me, that's a, that is a potential payment for, look, we need to get rid of this kid. I don't think that's ever been followed properly, and there's a good reason for it. The federal police stuffed it up totally, totally stuffed it up again. They really stuffed it up, and that was never, ever gone into. Rogerson's also the type of guy who knows that, you know, they've both sort of got together, put their heads together, worked out whatever defence they're going to go with, and at the same time knowing very well that you've got to shut your mouth on this one or else there's going to be heaps to pay. And, and he always did. Rogerson always shut his mouth. He never he never did deals. He never gave anyone else up, despite the fact that a lot of crime writers like to make out he did. He didn't. No one else went to jail when he was caught. He didn't get any, didn't do deals. He, he stood solid. I have a feeling this is a, a totally untold story that's, that no one's gone near yet because they're terrified. They don't want to upset the um, apple cart. No, there's two big apple carts that you've mentioned. To me, that was a, <laughs> oh, that was a, to me, that was a, a straight out hit. Yep. You know, you, you keep the drugs. 
it never quite added up, did it? Not only did it not add up, but no one went for it in court. It was never mentioned, you know, never. And that doesn't make any sense at all. How do they know how many, like there was no one else there to check the drugs, you know, it just doesn't make sense. And those two blokes who disappear, they know he's gone with McNamara, so... There's got to be a little lot more to it. The two blokes who've dropped him off, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. And you do raise a good point. A man like Rogerson doesn't act in a vacuum. He doesn't work alone ever. And throughout his career, he never did bring anyone down with him. No, he didn't. No matter what they say, people like to say he did. And they like to say, I, I've read all these coppers who talk about, oh, no, he did try and get two deals behind the scenes. Absolute bullshit. Yeah, you'd think one of them would have come off <laughs> if he had tried. No, he, he, he always stood solid, no matter what. Even when he went to jail over the um, the potential jury shooting and the uh, the hidden accounts, he never gave anyone else up. Stood solid. Those he could have got out. He could have really turned on those other guys who tried to help him out. He didn't. And when we think about why an old man might commit a crime for a lot of money like that, I mean, I don't think many of us have enough money in our pockets to ever not think about a potential. $100,000, couple of hundred thousand dollar job. Roger Rogerson didn't have a lot of money by the, by the, that sort of time in his life, did he? It's not like he walked out with a big... He gave it all to lawyers. Well, that's it. <laughs> he gave it all to lawyers. Yeah. And his, and his divorce and what have you. And, and those speaking engagements, that he wasn't paid a lot on that. And they didn't last that long either. So really and truly by the time he hit his 70s, he wouldn't have been living high on the hog. No, and he was never outside of crime either. He'd always acted as what you call somebody who you could get a, a quote off. In other words, you'd go along to him and sort of for information, you'd pay for information and he'd set you straight. He always had that reputation. That's why all the top crims still work with him. Even the ones in Melbourne, the so-called top ones in Melbourne were still friends with him, you know, after everything, they still were friends with him. How recently do you think he was active and working? Oh, I don't think he ever stopped, ever. Mm. Um, those guys can't stop. That That's what keeps them going. They're, that's their whole life. You know, they're addicted to what the rewards that come with being willing, being informative, following through, being able to bring things. Those guys never, ever stop, ever. Good crooks never retire. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. I was always telling Chris Chris Flannery, get away from him. You're mad, absolutely mad. And and he'd say, no, Ray, I, this this guy I, I trust, I trust totally. No, um, I always thought he was um, d- disastrous and dangerous. And and he thought the same about me because I was a person who was sort of like had done a couple of plays that were related to Chris Flannery and he was always weary of people who were writers or, you know, so he, he was never friendly to me and he was always telling Chris that I was a – you know, don't get don't get sucked in by Mooney. It's interesting to me though that Chris wasn't Chris's attitude wasn't oh I can take him or I'm I'm not afraid of him because oh, you know he trusted but him. But it was I trust him. Yeah, totally. Because they did some really willing jobs together, and um, and Chris had every reason to trust him. And plus, the other thing is, Rogerson was the guy who introduced Chris to uh, Jeffrey Edelson. Mm. When Chris needed to escape a judge, he was going to go in front of for an appeal that he'd been given a year for an assault on a doctor. Mm. Um, and it was uh, Rogerson and Duff who sort of took him along and introduced him to um, Edelson. And that saved him. You know, it, they got away from that judge and, and they did it again. They did it twice. Like f- physically got away? They, they were uh, – Chris was in front of two different judges for different trials. One was the murder of a fellow called Loxley, and they wanted to put that off, which they did, and he was um, admitted to hospital for suspected heart attack. This is Chris. Mm-hmm. Uh, the moment that the um, the trial was given um, an adjournment, <laughs> he, he left the hospital the same day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that happened twice. So Rogerson had done some good things for him, and, and he really did trust him. What other willing jobs did they do together now that they've both passed on? Is there anything you can Look, tell us a, you haven't I, been able to tell us before? <laughs> There's a lot, but I won't. Oh, I did write about one in the um, – when I first wrote A Green Light, which was about – Roger. you know, the, the last section of it's about Rogers and, and Chris. I had to change things because of libel laws, so I wasn't able to put a few things in. But when I rewrote it recently as an e-book – I put a few things in there that actually happened and <laughs> he would have got a bit of a shock when he read that because he, he wouldn't have known that no, this is Rogers and he wouldn't have had the faintest that anyone else knew. But no, Chris and I were close and I knew that. So I wrote about all that because he disappeared and I believe Rogers and did it. So that's why I wrote the book. In episode 317 of Australian True Crime, our guest today, Ray Mooney, went into detail as to how he believes his friend Christopher Flannery met his demise. Rogerson arranges a meeting 
this is the most sus meeting of all time. He mm. says, look, come and talk to these people about this jury shooting. I want to put this. So, so he brings along these top coppers and Chris and doesn't jury, want to go. Jury was a copper who who was uh, he was shot at. There was an yes. attempted assassination, attempted shooting of, of jury. So anyway, uh, Chris goes to this meeting reluctantly and this is opinion. Yep. It's opinion. Th- that's when they, they followed him. They followed him home. Do you think it's a, the story that I think is is the most sort of popular part of the narrative that we keep talking about is that he went out on a boat, was killed on a boat and yeah. then thrown over the no. side? Don't you think that's what happened? No. Um, that happened to a fellow called Brian Alexander who was a, right. a law clerk. Uh, and the folklore is that he was taken out in the boat, uh, like as a police barbecue on a boat. Yeah. And dumped overboard. No, nothing. That wasn't Chris. Chris. Nothing to do with Chris. No. What do you think happened to Chris? Oh, um, I've always and and I'm surmising one of the things that Rogerson used to say to Chris was, "Look, mate, every time you've done one of your hits, you've left the body for us. How how smart are you?" And he said, "Look, come and I'll show you what we do." No, this is true. Wow. So he takes him to the furnace in a um. Uh, what is it? Those um, wood yards, you know, oh. where they burn the guns. The seized well, the guns. guns are either seized or they are under. Um, you have a an amnesty, mm. and you can bring your guns in. And, and and every so often, the ones that they want to, the ones that they're not going to resell, the ones that they want to, they'll go and burn. And that's officially through the furnace. Everything's got to be officially through the furnace. But oh. <laughs> I think a few other things have been put through there. I remember you told us last time that, you know, there's the stories about, oh, someone took him out on a boat, Chris, and all this other stuff, but that's not what you believe. No, I, I believe that, um, put this way, I wasn't there, so I really don't know. And all I'm doing is deducting from the logical facts that I do know. And I, in my mind, I'm very certain that I conclude that he would have been picked up by Rogerson, and it wouldn't surprise me if it was Duff or one of the other. Um, there was a lot of other coppers who we worked with and stuck with. And by the, at this time, Rogerson had been sacked by the uh, police force. By the way, he was sacked in '84. Chris disappears in '85. So there were a lot of police that um, was still very close to Rogerson and had good reasons to ensure that Chris Flannery disappeared because at that stage. They really did believe he had shot jury, and they were the police force were really dirty on themselves for not having evened up on the shooting of jury because at the time they really believed that it had nothing to do with Rogerson, that another copper could never do that. But like things started leaking out, and it was became a little bit obvious that Rogerson was involved because his jury who's dying, and as he's dying, he says, "Look, it, it's probably related to the." time that Rogerson tried to bribe me. Why would he make that up? Jury would never why would someone on their deathbed make that up when they didn't when Jury never even really knew Rogerson? Why would he make that up when he's dying? Mm. So a lot of people believe that Rogerson was involved in that. And down the track the evidence now starts to suggest that it was Rogerson himself who shot Jury. And so when they've come from a place where your mate, your very close mate Chris Flannery is saying to you, no, don't worry about it. I trust him. I trust Rogerson years earlier. And then you now believe that it was Rogerson who was, if not 
Christopher's murderer than certainly the person who called for his murder. How did they get there? I mean, you've just explained about Chris Jury's murder, but why would Rogerson not trust Flannery by that stage? What did you think Flannery was going to do about it? At that stage, it's got nothing to do with trusting Flannery. It's to do with ensuring that the criminal milieu and the scene in which everyone's operating in can get back to functioning correctly. Because it was at the time of where the terminology that was used was gangland wars. And there were three factions or there were two major factions who were fighting against each other, and it was getting out of hand, so much so that, like, the police had arranged, for example, for Chris to shoot Dominican on the steps of the police station when he was um, brought in for questioning. They botched that. It was botched totally. So everything was out of control, and everyone was completely sort of... um, in fighting and fighting with everyone. The the deal was they bring all the heads in, they bring the McPhersons in, the Freemans in, the McCanns, all the fighting, the warring factions, and the deal is, look, there's no way in the world that this is ever going to stop unless Flannery's got rid of. Right, okay, because it was very in, wasn't it? Suddenly they've got, the accusation is that Flannery has tried to bribe Drury through Rogerson. He has sent Rogerson to try and bribe another officer. Also, Flannery's firing shots on the steps of a police station. So they must have been feeling like, who the fuck does he think he is? Like, it's one thing to be working with us, but it's meant to be on the quiet, mate. Like, you're not meant to be so open about it. I'm sure he knew that it would end this way sometime, his life. Do you think he would have been shocked when he realised it was that moment and who was about to end his life? Probably, but it happens so quickly you wouldn't. You don't have time for that. Uh, there's no such thing as this, you know, sit down there and shut up and all that stuff. It's just bang, bang, straight away, straight away, immediately. The moment that a car door opens and someone comes, it's straight away. And there's backup, you know, that you don't just do something like that. And no one sees a thing, you know, like, but I'm only imagining that, by the way, because it's, I'm surmising it from, from just logical deduction uh you, you never muck it it's to say you don't muck around with what you call willing no. people who are capable you just don't muck around obviously there was no deathbed confessions and i don't think anyone was really seriously expecting any but do you think um do you think any any stories of of any importance will come out now after roger's death do you think any crimes will be solved or anyone will come forward with any information that's relevant to anything? I don't think any crimes will be solved. <laughs> I think a lot of stories are going to come start to appear. And 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 I just love it how, like, especially ex-crims, you know, they, they're they all rewriting history with themselves as heroes <laughs> now. And it's, and it's so laughable. It really is laughable. You know, the number of people supposedly who have bashed Chris Flannery. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I cannot. I just cannot believe it. And that's a good point, actually, yes. Moving forward, let's not get too excited by people who tell us that they once bashed Roger Rogerson or uh, whatever, exactly. strong arm exactly. him in any yeah. way or conned him or anything like that, yeah. Look, there's no doubt he verbaled a lot of people who didn't deserve it and he probably verbaled a lot of people who were guilty, but there were a lot of people in prison as a result of him. The thing that I've always been disappointed over his relationship with Chris and what happened with Chris. But the thing that I've been more disappointed with was how Rogerson used to justify his behaviour by making out that all the people who he associated with were informers and they weren't, you know, that's, that's, that's like, he always says that Chris Flannery was his informer. 
God, like <laughs> you would trust your life with the fact that he would never inform on anyone. He said the same thing on national television about Nettie Smith. The irony of it was that Nettie then ultimately turned mm. an informer for ICAC uh, and gave up all the corrupt police that he dealt with, but he never gave up any crimes. He only ever gave up police. Yep. And, you know, everyone who arguably who he was associated with, they were all informers. And that's the worst thing you can ever do to a crime ever is give leave them with the legacy that oh, they were an informer it's we, we police get away with doing that all the time they're never taken to task no one ever asks okay show me do you think times have changed do you think we could ever see the likes of Roger Rogerson again? Uh, <laughs> I don't think they've changed that much. <laughs> but they've definitely changed. You know, like there's so much, um, there's too much scrutiny now. Uh, CTV <laughs> footage has changed the world. And it's the same with um, with the police that it is for the criminals. The, the world has changed, but human behaviour is never going to change. It's a matter of finding ways of getting away with it. Well, there will always be the Rogersons. Thank you to our guest, Ray Mooney, whose book, A Green Light, is still available, but only as an e-book. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.